look at ourselves, Father. The answer is not found in us, it's found in you. Your amazing love, your unfathomable, unchanging love. Pray that our hearts would see the love of God today and how you sent Jesus. Our hearts are satisfied in the riches of Christ. And where they are not, they are not we want our hearts to be satisfied in the riches of Christ. Open our eyes this morning to see more fully the glory of Jesus. Father, we want to pray for our Rancho 3M team. Pray for their safety. We pray that you would work in each of their hearts in the ways that you desire to do that. We pray for these kids that they're ministering to, that your amazing love would be made tangible to these children through the Risen Hope team that's down there. We also pray for Perry as he's finishing his um, church planting cohort, that, um, that these future church planters would be equipped to be faithful to Jesus Christ, and that you would continue to build out Perry's team. You would give him and Ruth faith for what you've called them to. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, kids, you can be dismissed to your Hope Kids class. Mike, could you grab my water? I left it down there. Thanks, man. Just as a reminder, on July 1st, um, we're going to be doing a prayer walk in the Sangri community. You can um, go to Realm and check out more details there if you're interested. Thank you, Hope Kids teachers, for serving our kids today. Um, so we appreciate y'all. Well, last fall, um, I was going through a really hard season. We had just come back from adopting our son from India. My job was really intense, and I was struggling. Um, I've battled many times with discouragement and doubt in the past, but this was the first time that I actually would have described my experience as depression. Um, life felt empty and meaningless. So we received a lot of care and counsel during this period, but one thing that stands out to me more than anything else was one day we were sitting in our living room with Mike and Kristen, and I um, was sharing just how discouraged and tempted to, to despair I was feeling, and Kristen just asked me a simple question. She said, Nathan, are you enjoying Jesus? And I think my response was something like semi-defensive, like, well, no, not right now. <laughs> But over the days and weeks to come, as I reflected on that question, it helped me turn my attention and focus away from my doubts and my fears and my questions and towards knowing Jesus and being known by him. And so as I turned to Jesus daily, slowly that darkness began to lift. What I needed in my despair and doubt and depression was to abide in Christ, to have a living relationship with Jesus. And so today we're continuing in our series in Revelation, and we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Sardis. And what we're going to see in this passage is what I needed to see last fall, and what we each need to see daily. It's this, we must have a living relationship with Jesus in order to faithfully bear his name and inherit eternal life. We must have a living relationship with Jesus in order to faithfully bear his name and inherit eternal life. So please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. 
So this letter begins with an opening where Jesus reveals himself in a way that is specific to the situation of this church. And then we see a devastating one-sentence rebuke. Then there's a call to repentance with a warning of what will happen if they don't repent. Then there's a commendation to the small faithful remnant within the church and then a closing promise. So it follows the same basic format we've been seeing for all these other letters. In our first point this morning, we're going to go be, be going through the text line by line. And in the second point, we're going to dive deeper into this church's reputation of being alive. And then we're going to have some extended time for reflection, for application. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be thus clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's, let's pray again. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through this word. Let your word have its effect on our hearts and our lives. And I pray that we would each turn to having a more full and more living relationship with Jesus because of what we learn here. In Jesus' name, amen. So some background on the church in Sardis. Sardis was one of the oldest and most important cities in Asia Minor. It was a wealthy cosmopolitan city and it housed the temp a temple to Artemis that was one of the largest temples in the world at the time. And so this letter is to the church in Sardis, and verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So Jesus appears to this church as the source of life and strength. I like how Beale puts this. The fact that Jesus appears to them holding the seven stars representing angelic support and also the seven spirits representing the power of the Holy Spirit means that he has supernatural strength available to them to have renewed obedience. This church is going to need to be connected to Jesus' supernatural power to revive them because they are on life support. Let's look at the rebuke in verse 1. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is the briefest but the most devastating correction that Jesus brings to any of the seven churches. And he gives three different angles on this. First he says, you're dead. But then in verse 2, he says, wake up, which kind of sounds like they're sleeping. And then in verse 2, he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So they're dead, they're sleeping, they're still partly alive. These are all just different angles on the situation. This church is in a spiritual stupor. They're drifting off to a sleep from which they will not awake. 
What else do we know about this church in Sardis? Well, we'll see in verse 4 that there are a few people who have not soiled their garments. And so we can see something important by contrast. This dying majority in Sardis were soiling their garments. This is referring yet again to compromising with the world using the image of sexual immorality for spiritual adultery. So let's look at verses 2 to 3, which is the call to repentance. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So in this verse, there are two commands. Wake up. They're drifting off into a spiritual coma. And this latter is intended to jolt them awake. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. This isn't referring to the faithful remnant in verse 4, but rather to whatever small aspect of life still exists in this dying majority in Sardis. They're like a fire that's smoldering with just a few live embers among the ashes. And Jesus is telling them, blow on those embers before they go out entirely. Now there are two ways to interpret in verse 2 when Jesus says, your works are not complete in the sight of my God. I think both of these meanings are actually present to some degree. The first way that the Greek word translated as complete can be understood is in a temporal sense. So this verse would mean they started well, but then they failed to complete the task. But the second possible meaning here is that their works are not complete in the sense that they're lacking something, like a recipe that is not complete because it's missing a key ingredient. And I actually think that's probably the primary sense here. But whether the works of the church were merely unfinished or they were lacking a vital component, they were not in any condition to complete those works. They needed to be spiritually awakened and strengthened. But what does that look like to be spiritually awakened and strengthened in a little more practical, tangible terms? Well, verse 3 fleshes this out. It, it puts it into um, practical terms what Jesus is calling them to do. Look at verse 3. There are three things. He says, remember what you received and heard, keep it, and repent. They need to remember something that they've forgotten. They've forgotten what they received and heard, the good news about Jesus, the gospel. But what does it mean then to keep the gospel? Well, we keep the gospel by not treating it as merely a set of doctrinal statements. We keep the gospel through an ongoing and abiding relationship with the God of the gospel. 1 John 4.15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. This church needed to remember that the gospel calls us to a life of obedience to, dependence on, and communion with Jesus. And the only way that they're going to be able to do that is if they repent. They must turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus, the one who gives his own life by the Spirit and enables us to walk in that obedience. Verse 3 continues with the warning. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. This church is asleep. They're not keeping alert. So when Jesus comes against them in judgment, it's going to be like a robber coming into in the middle of the night and taking all their stuff and leaving them before they even know what's going on. But not everyone in Sardis is dead or dying. There are a few who are still being faithful. Look at verse 4. This is the commendation. 
Jesus says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So these saints haven't soiled their garments, and they are worthy. Let's look at each of these. First, they haven't soiled their garments. This means they haven't compromised with the world. They haven't fallen into spiritual adultery. They have been a faithful bride to Jesus and remain pure. How can we better understand what this looks like? Well, we can look at one of the later chapters in Revelation where Jesus reveals the heavenly perspective on what's going on in these earthly situations in these churches. In Revelation chapter 7, we see this picture of all God's elect. And think about this connected to the church in Sardis. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And one of the elders said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the church in Sardis was, Jesus wants them to see themselves identified with this great multitude. They are clothed in white, just like what is promised to these faithful few in Sardis. And how does the text say their clothes are made white? They were washed in the blood of the Lamb. So the purity of this church in Sardis is not the purity of moral perfection, but the purity of being connected to the pure one, Jesus, and being washed in his blood. Jesus says they haven't soiled their garments. And then he says, whoever conquered will be clothed in white. So we can see the already but not yet aspect of kingdom living. These saints already have unsoiled garments, but Jesus will clothe them in fully white garments. They've already washed their sins away in the blood of the lamb, but they are not yet free from the presence of sin. But one day they will be completely free and they will walk in white. But Jesus doesn't just say that they will walk in white. He says that they will walk with him in white. They will enjoy pure and unhindered intimacy with the one by whom and for whom they've kept themselves pure. In addition to these saints not having soiled garments, Jesus says that they are worthy. Here's what another passage of scripture says about what it looks like to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. This text shows that a church walking in a manner worthy of the Lord doesn't mean that we're doing it perfectly. In fact, it assumes that we're not. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So when Jesus says that these saints are worthy, don't picture them as these perfect, sinless Christians. Yes, they are faithfully holding on to Jesus, but they're doing, as they're doing that, they are forgiving each other and bearing with each other in love. Because there's going to be things to forgive and things to bear with, even among the worthy. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 at the promises that Jesus gives to this church. Verse 5 and 6, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've already talked about this first promise about being clothed in white garments. This is the perfection of purity, holiness, and righteousness for those who have held fast to Jesus. The next promise is, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, is this verse saying that if you don't overcome or conquer, your name will be blotted out of the book of life? Is it possible for your name to be in there and then be erased? Well, according to Revelation 13.8 and then Revelation 17.8, people's names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. In light of these texts and many other texts, I think we can best understand what Jesus is saying by just sticking to what he does say. He is comforting these ones faithfully holding fast to them that their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. He's saying you can rest assured that you have eternal life. The point of his, what he's saying is assurance for his faithful. So what is the book of life? The book of life ties back to Daniel chapter 12. And it's a book that contains the names of all of those who will inherit the kingdom. And the nature of this book gets clearer as we move out throughout the Bible. In Daniel chapter 12, it's simply referred to as the book. Then in Revelation 3, it's referred to the book of life. And then in Revelation chapter 21, it's referred to as the Lamb's book of life. So why is it called the Lamb's book of life? Well, there are two reasons. We saw in Revelation 7, those who have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus in repentance and faith have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Only those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb will be saved. The second reason why it's called the Lamb's book of life is because eternal life is found in Jesus. The benefit of having your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb is not something that can somehow be separated from a relationship with Jesus himself. Receiving the forgiveness of sins and receiving eternal life is an effect of being united to Jesus by faith. In 1 John 5.12 it says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's that simple. Before we look at the final promise that Jesus gives to this church, let's contrast this remnant who's staying faithful against the dying majority in the church. Here's the root issue. The faithful remnant in Sardis is alive because they're staying connected to Jesus. And the majority of the church is dying because they've lost their connection to Jesus. This church is embodying, mostly for the worse, what Jesus says in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. This is what's happening in Sardis. Both the abiding and the withering. Let's look at this last promise in verse 5. Jesus says, I will confess his name before my Father. So if we faithfully bear the name of Jesus and identify with him now, he will identify with us when we stand before the throne of God. And he will confess our name before the Father and his angels. What does that mean that he will confess our name? It will be the opposite of what we see in Matthew chapter 7. 
Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So in Matthew 7, these people were workers of lawlessness. There was bad fruit. But it was just that. It was rotten fruit. It was the evidence of them not having a vital relationship to Jesus. The root issue, the fundamental rebuke, is relational. It's personal. I never knew you. I will confess his name before my father is just the opposite. It's a statement of knowing. I knew him. So just imagine this. You're standing before the throne of God, and Jesus looks lovingly at you. And then he declares for all to hear, I knew Jude Gavin. I knew Brad Crosby. Or, I never knew you. We must have a living relationship with Jesus in order to faithfully bear his name and inherit eternal life. So that's a summary of the text. What I'd like to do next is dig a little deeper into this dying majority in the church in Sardis and understand better how they stopped abiding in Jesus. So point number two is the church's reputation. So here's a question that jumps out at me when I study this passage. How does this church in Sardis have a reputation for being alive? I mean, they're spiritually dead, verse 1. They're weak, verse 2. They've forgotten the word of God, verse 3. They aren't walking in obedience to Jesus, and they're soiling their garments. But the reputation is, Sardis, it's a great church. They're really alive. How is that possible? Well, it seems that the church used to be vibrant in their faith, but over time they stopped bearing faithful witness to Jesus and were corrupted and deadened through compromise. But is the reason that they have this reputation for being alive merely like residual reputation from their former faithfulness? Is the rebuke that Jesus gives Sardis simply that they used to be doing well, but now they're not? No, that's not all that's going on in Sardis. The contrast in the rebuke is not fundamentally between what they were and what they now are, but, because, but between the perception of what they are, being alive, and what they actually are, dead. The church's reputation for being alive is an integral part of the rebuke. You see, there's a thread that runs through this letter in Sardis. There's a word that appears three times in the ESV, but it appears four times in the Greek text. It's the word name. Did you notice that, that that word name showed up a lot? Verse 4, you still have a few names in Sardis. Verse 5, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And then again in verse 5, I will confess his name before my father. So those are the three times in English. The fourth time in the Greek is the word reputation. In verse 1, you have the reputation, literally you have the name of being alive. So this word reputation or name is a thread that ties this whole 
text together, the reputation name of being alive is actually an integral part of the rebuke. This used to be a spiritually alive church, and they had made a name for themselves. Their reputation, their name was something they were now actively seeking to preserve. They started to die when they began to care more about their reputation for being alive than they cared about actually being alive. Sardis fell into what we would call externalism or formalism or legalism. They became hypocrites, two-faced, wanting to appear one way but actually being another. This is exactly what Jesus so scathingly criticized the Pharisees for. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. That's a very vivid image which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. On the outside, this church in Sardis was still doing a lot of the same things that they had been doing. They were still going through the motions. But on the inside, the spiritual life was gone because they had lost their connection to Jesus. They were branches that had been disconnected from the vine and they had begun to wither. And when Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing, he's not referring to the fact that, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power and everything in creation depends on him. It is true in an absolute sense that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, not even take our next breath. But that's not what he's talking about in John 15. When Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing, he's saying that if we aren't abiding in him, if we're not staying connected to the vine by faith, then the empowering, life-giving sap of the Holy Spirit will not be flowing into our lives, and all that we do will be spiritually dead. He's talking about an active and persistent dependence on and communion with him, apart from which we actually can do a lot of things. He's not saying you literally can do nothing apart from him, but whatever you do apart from him will be done in the flesh, lacking any true spiritual life and lacking any eternal significance and will be accounted of as nothing. It'll be meaningless. Here's how one commentator describes the state of the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis was not troubled by persecution. It was not disturbed by heresy. It was not distressed by Jewish opposition. It was well known as an active, vigorous Christian congregation characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all of these religious activities were a failure because they were only formal and external and not infused with the life-giving Holy Spirit. So when you think about a dying church, like, what do you think of? Like, what comes to mind? Immediately, like, what, what, what's going on in that church? Like, there decrease in numbers, maybe? Like, there used to be a lot of people going there, and now there aren't. That's, I think that's what we usually think of when, we're, when we think of a dying church. It's like, you look at a church, and you're like, yeah, that church isn't going to be around for very much longer. Like, they're dying. That's not the situation in Sardis. This church at Sardis appeared to have life, but they were spiritually dead. The reason why a church can be dead 
but have a reputation for being alive is because being disconnected from the life-giving vine doesn't mean that all activity ceases. So physically dead people don't do anything. Spiritually dead people can be really busy doing a lot of really good things. Spiritually dead people can be really busy doing a lot of really good things. Friends, this can be the same for us. We can go through the motions of religious activities. We can appear on the outside to be active and spiritual and healthy, but inwardly be dying. This text calls us to face the fact that someone can be active in evangelism, reading their Bible regularly, praying often, serve dependably in the church, discipline and train their children well, be faithful to their spouse, be a pastor, deacon, ministry leader, and yet be spiritually dead. We must face the fact that a church can be doctrinally solid, have a good reputation in the community, be growing, have an exciting building project, have an engaging youth ministry, and yet be spiritually dead. So we're going to take several minutes now for some reflection and application. I'm thankful for the ways that our church is abiding in Christ and for the fruit that is proceeding from that abiding in him. It's beautiful to see. However, when we look at the risk factors of these different churches, this issue of externalism or going through the motions is one that we could be more at risk for than like, say, falling into doctrinal compromise like we saw at Thyatira. I don't think the danger is primarily in the shell building project. Now, some of us are probably tempted to think, wow, we've got this building project. We're really spiritually alive. Um, if you're thinking that way, this text would really caution you. Spiritually dead churches can do building projects. It happens all the time. But when I talk to people involved in the building project, or when someone comes up here and shares about it, I think we're actively seeking to keep a level head about this, open-handed, seeking to be faithful. I don't think that's where our primary danger is. I really don't. Here's where I think the greatest danger is for us, church family. The things that we think are the most important, the things that we value, the things that we want to be known for, the things that we want to be part of our reputation, these are the areas where we can be at most risk to become externalists, to be spiritually dead but appear to be alive. Because these are the areas where you can be tempted to think, as long as we are doing that, we're good. As long as we are doing this, that means we have spiritual life. Um, when I drive to one of our remote facilities for my full-time job, I always pass by this church. 
and they've got a sign out front that says, we are a praying church. And when I see that sign, there are two thoughts that pop into my head. The first is, that's really cool. I love that. They want to be known as a praying church. The second thought that pops into my head is, oh, be careful. You see, if a church stakes their reputation on being a praying church, they're going to be particularly tempted to go through the motions in prayer. Spiritually dead churches can be praying churches, but they can be just praying to keep up a reputation. They can keep the prayer meetings going long after everyone in that church has died. There's no spiritual life left, just an empty external practice and a reputation for being a praying church. So how could Risen, Risen Hope end up like the church in Sardis? We don't have a sign outside, we're a praying church. How could we have a reputation for being alive but being dead? Well, it's most likely to come through the things that we value, the things that we want to be known for, the things that we want to be considered part of our reputation. So in preparation for this message, I was just pondering and thinking, I was like, where can we be tempted as a church to go through the motions? Where, why, where might we be at risk? So what I did was, I went to our church's website. And I looked to see what do we value as a church? What do we want our reputation to be? So I want to show you the four things that are on our website. Now these might not actually be like the current top four things that we want to be known for. I think it's pretty close. I don't think it's that out of date. I want to show you these four things on our website and then just go through each of them and show how we could maintain doing those things but be spiritually dead. So put up, this is from our website. So here are the four things. This is what we want to be known for. Gospel-centered, expository preaching, mutual care, evangelism, and community. Now just to be clear, these are all really good things. This is not a criticism of these four values. But this is a demonstration of how we could be doing these things and yet be spiritually dead. Okay, so let's pick one. Uh, mutual care. As long as we are mutually caring for each other, we're good. If we are mutually caring for one another, that means we have spiritual life. Well, it's pretty easy with this one to demonstrate that it isn't a sure sign of spiritual life. Can spiritually dead people mutually care for each other? Yes. In fact, it's even normal. Jesus says it's normal. He says in Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So spiritually dead people can love those who love them. Absolutely. We could easily be mutually caring for one another, have that reputation, but actually be dead. Well, what about evangelism and outreach? As long as we're faithful in evangelism, we're good. Well, can spiritually dead people can a spiritually dead church be committed to evangelism and outreach? Well, apparently so, because in Matthew 23, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees because they traveled across land and sea to make converts, and then they make them twice as much children of hell as they are themselves. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul describes, this is really interesting, how he encountered people who preached Christ from envy and rivalry, who are seeking to afflict him in his imprisonment. And it's like, well, they were probably preaching a false gospel. No, he, he says, 
Christ was actually being proclaimed by these people. It wasn't a false gospel. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's really strange. But can spiritually dead people be committed to evangelism and outreach? Yeah. Well, what about expository preaching? As long as we're doing expository preaching, we're good. If we're doing expository preaching, that means we have spiritual life. Well, let me define expository preaching first. Al Mohler defines this as preaching that takes as its central purpose the presentation and application of the text of the Bible. So that's how we seek to preach at Risen Hope. Bring out of the text what is actually there and expose it, expose it to view and communicate how it applies to our lives. So can spiritually dead people, can a spiritually dead church be committed to expository preaching? Well, James warns us about being doers of the word, not only hearers. We can, week after week, hear the word of God preached, accurately interpreted, winsomely communicated opportunities for application, and we can walk away unchanged and dead. In John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life but they testify about me. If we fail to see a living connection to Jesus, even evident faithfulness to the scriptures themselves doesn't guarantee spiritual life. Well, what about gospel-centered? As long as we're being gospel-centered, we're good. If we're being gospel-centered, that means we have spiritual life. Is it possible to be gospel-centered and yet be spiritually dead. Well, first, what do we mean by gospel-centered? It's a bit of a buzzword. You've got gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered preaching. What does it actually mean? Gospel-centered has sometimes meant specifically focusing on Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. But that's only one component of the gospel, and forgiveness of sins is not the end goal of the gospel. This kind of gospel-centeredness resulted in churches sometimes preaching like a truncated gospel, a gospel with parts cut out of it. So we, as a church in Risen Hope, are seeking to be gospel-centered in a more full way. We want to focus on Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and understanding our union with him, how in his death we died and in his resurrection we have new life. We're seeking to incorporate all these aspects of the gospel into our evangelism training and our songs and our preaching and our community groups. So is it possible to be gospel-centered in that fuller sense but still be spiritually dead? Yes. And this is where I would like to give us a caution as a church. Understanding and being able to articulate and being centered on the gospel, even a fully rounded gospel that includes our union with Christ and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, is different from actually being transformed by a living relationship with the Jesus of the gospel. While it is good and necessary that we are gospel-centered. This must be accompanied by a relational experience of communion with Jesus. We cannot obtain spiritual life through theological concepts, even a sound gospel-centered theology. It's possible to articulate the right things about Jesus and what he accomplished for us through his life, death, resurrection, 
and not have a heart that pursues Jesus. It's possible to understand the doctrine of union with Christ and to never engage in life-giving communion with Christ. In other words, it's possible to know a lot about Jesus and not know Jesus. John 17, 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know about you. No, that they know you, the one true God, and know Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. If we don't know Jesus, we don't have spiritual life. So all of these things, these values, mutual care, evangelism, expository preaching, and being gospel-centered, these are all really good things. And when done in obedience to and with dependence on and communion with Jesus, these can both be the fruit and evidence of our spiritual life, and they can be things that Jesus uses to draw us closer to himself and strengthen us. But we must never think that any of these things are the source of our spiritual life. Our spiritual life only only comes from knowing Jesus and being known by him through his spirit. Well, that's about our church's reputation. What about your reputation? If we checked your website, literally or metaphorically, what would we see as being important to you? What do you want to be known for? It's probably something pretty good. It's probably a good thing. Do you want a reputation to be a good mom, good dad? You want your reputation to be that you're compassionate or competent or having integrity. And maybe you're doing everything that you can to maintain that reputation and it's killing you on the inside. Is there a part of your life where you have a reputation for being alive but you're dead? And if you had to choose, which would you care more about? Having a reputation for being spiritually alive but actually being dead or being thought of as an outcast and an outsider but actually having a loving connection with Jesus? If you had to choose, which would you care more about? If we don't want to die as a church, we must individually, intimately know and commune with Jesus and corporately stir and encourage each other to intimately know and commune with Jesus. We must have a living relationship with Jesus in order to faithfully bear his name and inherit eternal life. So, do you know Jesus? Not about Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Let me ask this a few different ways. Do you have a living relationship with Jesus? Are you following Jesus as his disciple or just studying facts about him from afar? Like Kristen asked me, are you enjoying Jesus? Do you delight in him? As we consider these questions, there are three responses, three groups of people that I'd like to address. First, there are some of you that as you consider the question, do you know Jesus, your heart says, Yes, I know Jesus and he knows me. Second, there may be some of you who have overly sensitive consciences and this kind of question, do you know Jesus, sends you into a spiral of anxiety and introspection. Well, do I know Jesus? Do I know? How do I know that I know Jesus? 
Third, maybe you're listening to this message and you realize that you are drifting off to sleep. You have not been maintaining a living relationship with Jesus. You've just been going through the motions. Well, whether you're in the first, second, or third group, or somewhere in between, we can all respond in the same way this morning, by, take, by communing with Jesus through taking the Lord's Supper. See, Jesus tells the sleepy church in Sardis to wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you received, keep it, and repent. All these things can be done here at the Lord's Supper. Here we meet with Jesus for him to nourish and strengthen us. Here we remember Jesus. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Here Jesus offers himself to us. He says, take, eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood. John 6, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks, in my, drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So if you're in the first category and your relationship with Jesus is strong and you find yourself delighting in him, come to Jesus at the table. Come and receive fresh strength. Remember again what you've received and enjoy communion with your Savior. If you're in the second category and these questions put you into a spin of anxiety and worry, come to Jesus at the table. Take your eyes off yourself and look at him. Come to him bringing yourself anxieties and all, trusting that he's who you need and that his love is able to meet you where you are. If you're in the third category and you're seeing that you're sleepy, maybe you're even close to spiritually dying, come to Jesus at the table. The awareness of your sleepiness is evidence that there's still life remaining. That life needs to be strengthened. Strengthen that life by tapping back into the vine through this meal. So here's the only caution I will share about partaking today. If you can't come for the purpose of communing with Jesus, don't come. Okay? Let today be the day you stop going through the motions. Okay? And you know, I've done it. I've been sitting there and like bowing my head and thinking about something from work and I'm like, well, I don't want to go up yet because like I don't want to be the first one, and but I'm gonna keep an eye open to make sure I'm not the last one, you know. Like, I've done it. Let's not do that today. Come today only to meet with Jesus. Come only to commune with him and know him and be known by him. Don't come because you're afraid of what people will think if you don't come. Don't come because you want to be seen as spiritual. Come only to meet with Jesus. So we're going to give some space here to pause and reflect. We don't want you to feel rushed through this. Um, Christopher, if you could come on up. Um, just play some music. Um, so we usually partake at the same time. But today, just come eat and drink whenever you're ready. After you've partaken, if you'd like to stay and pray and reflect, please feel free to do so. Just be thoughtful of our Hope Kids workers. If your spouse or a friend really would like to stay, maybe you can go get the kids. Um, 
to release our Hope Kids workers. But let's let the Lord do his enlivening work in our hearts this morning. So whenever you're ready, for those of you who desire to commune with Jesus, to know Jesus, to be known by Jesus, Come and receive his body and his blood for the strengthening and enlivening of your souls. And then whenever you're ready, you can quietly exit. Let others continue to meditate.